1964 New York World's Fair, celebrating man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. I'm Paul Zoll, and these podcasts will be regular updates from the worlds of literature, popular culture, and the old religion. That's Bob Dylan's phrase in relation to some of life's everyday problems, such as anger, loss, and bewilderment. Most of my podcasts will begin with a text, sometimes from a novel, I Love Possessed, sometimes from a movie, The Bride of Frankenstein, sometimes from a song, Telstar, for example. Sometimes from the Bible, perfect love casts out fear. Sometimes from a TV show, tonight's story will be a thriller. Each week, I hope to offer you something different, something entertaining, something even, well, blood-transfusing. Act three of Thornton Wilder's The Alcestiad, which is his, um, his interpretation of the ancient Greek myth of Alcestis, Admetus, and Apollo, uh, is the conclusion in which the aged and uh, solitary and forgotten and humiliated woman, the heroine of uh, powerful uh, female generosity, calling, wisdom, sacrificial love, generosity, and also um, awesome strength from Act 1 and Act 2 is now seen to have come to a place in her life when she is utterly alone and forgotten, sweeping the deck of the palace of Thessaly, the palace of the king over which she had once presided, while the evil and awful usurper Aegis reigns in Admetus's stead, having murdered Admetus and the children, and uh, she is all alone reduced to complete and total humiliation. Now, this play uh, brings us to the kind of fulfillment of the wisdom that Wilder is attempting to uh, present and understand in connection with resignation, wisdom, old age, and loss. And there is also uh, a strong religious dimension in this. And I want to uh, talk before I um, go into the resignation, wisdom, understanding, and finally the the uh, point of death at which uh, the God reveals to her a future, in fact, not at all unlike that which he reveals to Harriet in Pullman Car Hiawatha, with which I started this four-part series, and we shall end it with the uh, very uh, admonitory and very thrilling and also a very real uh, place of, uh, of death for Alcestis at the end of Act 3. I want to start uh, by just underlining one a little problem that we have with an author like this. <clears throat> People today are so um, nervous about drawing um, specifically Christian ideas or themes or uh, echoes in literature literature, just for all sorts of cultural reasons, which simply are part of the scene today, that um, 
that there's uh, you, you almost uh, get resistance if you should find some specifically theological slash Christian meanings or interpretations in a in a work of art by a broader, uh, somewhat agnostic, uh, but reared in the Christian tradition writer like uh, like Wilder. And uh, when I do bring out certain Christian thematics, which I believe are there, although they're not by any means in all of his work, and uh, uh, they come and they go, uh, depending on um, where the writer himself was feeling and thinking at a certain point in his development. Um, I'm a little nervous about this. What happens, however, is I get so um, uh, paranoid about uh, bringing... Uh, Christian ideas or making Christian associations that I don't do it at all. And that's wrong because when you, out of fear for seeming like a dogmatist or an orthodox type who's sort of beyond the pale of real rational inquiry, which is sort of the paradigm one often hears or feels, certainly in academic life, mainstream, you then uh, you, you then actually commit a scholarly injustice by not doing it where it is there. In other words, out of fear of doing it where it's not there, you don't do it where it is there, and then you make a mistake. You make what is, in fact, a, a mistake of, of truth or a mistake of, of scholarly intelligencing. And this is something that uh, comes up in uh, Alcestis, because in the third act of the Alcestis, <clears throat> there is a one of these uh, sort of... Um, uh, apocryphal conversations between the god Apollo and the beetle-like scuttering around uh, insect death. And what um, I haven't told you is that in Act 2, the great event of the myth of Alcestis was dramatized, by which Alcestis uh, gave her life for her husband Admetus for reasons that are very beautifully and profoundly expressed dramatically, and then having died to the great horror of her loving husband, the hero Hercules arrived on the scene for another different reason and was so shocked by the fact that Admetus had lost his wife and that the great and awesome Alcestis was dead that he undertook to go to the underworld like Orpheus. C, by the way, Black Orpheus. C, Black Orpheus, the 1950s um, uh, Portuguese-slash-French film of the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice to capture the poignancy of a, of a trip to the underworld to recover a love that is unbreakable and yet has been lost. See it. Now, um, what uh, the uh, Alcestiad has here is uh, death is speaking to Apollo in the aftermath of the um, breakage of death on the part of Hercules to release Alcestis from it to restore her to her husband Admetus. And death says to uh, uh, to Apollo, after Apollo has says, have you mended the wall of death, that wall through which Hercules broke? Death rebukes Apollo and says, broke Hercules? You broke it. You broke the ancient law and order of the world, that the living are the living and the dead are the dead. Apollo, yes, one small ray of light fell where light had never fallen before. Death, you broke that law. And now you're caught up in its consequences. Apollo says, I have made myself known to men. I have set my story in motion. Death, your lesson. Apollo, yes, my lesson. 
that I can bring back from the dead only those who have offered their lives for others. Death, you brought back one and now you are hurling thousands and thousands into my kingdom. This is a reference to the plague which is occurring on the Thessaly at this point. And we continue. And finally, at the end of this small scale but very dense dialogue of a page between Apollo and death, Apollo says to this crawling but all-powerful in his domain character, Death, the sun is risen. You are shaking. Death says, but give me an answer. In other words, what does this mean? I'm in a hurry. Apollo, start accustoming yourself to a change. Now, I say that because the reader and the listener in 1955, as well as the writer, in my opinion, given the rest of his work, and even this particular reader uh, who's speaking at this moment, cannot hear that dialogue. It is impossible culturally spiritually, historically, educationally, for someone like me not to hear that dialogue in light of the Christian story of the sacrificial atoning death uh, of Jesus Christ and his resurrection on the third day. When the playwright puts into the words of Apollo that I can bring back from the dead only those who have offered their lives for others, it is inevitable that a chain of associations is going to occur by which I'm going to see that as a Christian resonance and echo. And that is in fact there. It is too obvious to miss. Uh, and it continues throughout the section, and there are some minor echoes of it during the actual events in Act 2 in which this transpires. Now, I say that because I, as a matter of principle, I'd like to put it on the record that, yes, we have learned where not to project Christian issues. For example, the Christian church from a very early era, uh, early years in the Christian era began to interpret the Song of Solomon, the lyric poetry from the Old Testament, or what is now often called the Hebrew Scriptures. We began to interpret this as a representation of the relationship of Christ to his bride, the church, as St. Paul had uh, developed that metaphor. And uh, we interpreted that uh, lyric poem from the Old Testament entirely from a Christian view, and this occurs in a very big time, first in the early years of Christian uh, exposition of scripture, and then in the 17th century where the Puritans, uh, especially a man named Samuel Rutherford, but he was not the only one, went wild in their um, hyper-projection of Christian love thematics onto the story of the Song of Solomon. And we really uh, need to watch that. We need to, we need to know when we're doing it, because uh, people who are in that tradition itself take umbrage when uh, they feel that uh, these Hebrew words are being co-opted by later people to whom they were not intended, for whom they were not written, and which they did simply not mean. Now, in this case, however, if we were shuddering from a, uh, a sort of chastened humility not to impose Christian ideas on a work of literature, we'd be making a mistake here to be too bashful, because the, the message is too unequivocal, it's too strong, it's too clearly stated, and in context of its time 
and its writer, given his father, given Oberlin College, given uh, the chapel services, given his mother, given the church, given the clergyman brother who was a New Testament scholar and theologian, given the um, what was called, he called the foam rubber. Wilder called said he'd grown up in the foam rubber period of American Protestantism. Uh, these issues which come very clearly uh, out in some, though not all, and to some extent, but not fully, and with open-endedness, and yet with a door ajar uh, in these stories, you would be doing an injustice not to recognize the echo. And so that is why I underline the Christian echo of the uh, Apolline, Apollonian word uh, to uh, death, the all-powerful. Now, I'd like to look with you at the uh, meaning of this play, pulling it together for the um, uh, the experience uh, of uh, of wisdom that old age uh, brings, and uh, to which uh, Alcestis herself has been brought. Now, someone was telling me recently that young, the young man, the young person starts out on a journey, we might call it the Iliad. He goes from home to there, in which case we would say Troy. That's the metaphor. But in the Odyssey, the, uh, the hero, in this case Ulysses, has to go back from there, Troy, to here, to home. And uh, in uh, the uh, earlier part of the play, the heroine, Alcestis, in her marriage and her life with her husband, in her religious vocation, somewhat transmuted, and in her great life with her children and her power and her majesty and her genuine, generous greatness as a person, she went to there. And now she's going back home. She's going, uh, what did it, uh, the Almond Brothers, back to where it all started. She's going back to where it all started. And it's an ugly, unpleasant, hurtful journey of loss. It's a little bit of Citizen Kane. It's a little bit of John Ford's great movie, The Wings of Eagles, in which the Frank Weed becomes a great, great man in the uh, in the naval uh, in the naval branch of the Air Force, and then uh, between his uh, marriage, between his children, between uh, his polio, between his uh, actually it's a it's a fall on stairs, a spinal injury, between his uh, complete humiliation at every level, between Pearl Harbor and finally his being stranded on a chair between two destroyers in the Pacific. You see a man having gained it all and then losing it all, but he's clueless. What hit him? What is this? I had an achievement and now I've lost it all between a spinal injury, a career gone south, and a, and a wife whom, uh, whose uh, alienation I have myself earned and created. Where in the heck am I? Now, um, Alcestis replies to this situation with a wisdom. She replies to this situation. Uh, she is forced to respond to it in wisdom. And in the story, she's sweeping the uh, uh, the court as a plague rages about the palace. And two visitors come to the palace. These visitors are Alcestis's son, Epimenes, 
and his great boon friend, Cheriander. And they have come not even knowing that the mother is still alive or there, or Epimenes in some hope, needing to constantly have it stoked by his ever-hopeful friend, Cheriander. They approach the palace, these two men, with the idea of murdering King Aegis, who had killed Epimenes' father, Alcestis' husband, Admetus, and uh, had usurped the throne, sort of Henry IV in uh, Richard II, that type of thing. And Alcestis makes herself known. It's kind of a Ben-Hur moment. Remember the end of Ben-Hur, where in the leper colony, Ben-Hur's mother, uh, who had lost everything and been imprisoned for years in the in the uh, Herodian fortress in Jerusalem, and now has leprosy, uh, makes herself known, but she is, uh, it is just the worst possible thing in the entire world uh, prior to the uh, great and miraculous epiphany at the end involving the death of Christ. Now, here, um, Epimenes and Alcestis are made known to one another, and Alcestis is going to try to give to her younger, her son, wisdom, her son who is filled with wrath to kill the usurping murderer of his dad. And uh, um, Alcestis says, do not call me unhappy, as her son sees her in this just awesomely reduced, humiliated condition. Alcestis, learn to know unhappiness when you see it. There is only one misery, and that is ignorance. Ignorance of what our lives are. That is misery and despair. What um, she is trying to convey to her son, who is not ready to hear it, is, and this is a mystery, by the way, one of the great mysteries of life is that very often young people who need to understand the tragic, frustrating nature of life in such a way that they might not lose hope, but in such a way that they can interpret the disappointments that inevitably come with being a human being, they will not hear the sober voices of aged reality. Wisdom cannot speak to a young person, and constitutionally a young person is not intended to hear uh, messages of pessimism, despair, and uh, Citizen Kane lostness and rosebud. A young person is not meant to hear it, and yet, speaking as a middle-aged man, I so wish now that some of this had been vouchsafed to me when I was young. It couldn't have uh, been sufficient to uh, destroy uh, my young resolve my male desire to achieve and go forward. It couldn't have been sufficient, but it might have been good, say, at the second defeat, the second defeated girlfriend episode, the second job defeat, the uh, not getting a fellowship and getting the second level of fellowship or uh, getting the wrong fellowship or uh, you can name any number of possibilities. Had an older sort of sarastro, and I'm quoting there from the magic flute, the, the father figure par excellence, who helps the young Tamino to find his way forward uh, at the beginning of his great and important life-wise journey. I uh, myself uh, really did not have uh, someone to interpret early defeats from a wider view, and therefore all they became was a chain, 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 chain of fools. You know, it was a, it was a, a chain of losses, a chain of uh, slightly not quite exactly what I had hoped this would be. And uh, then uh, without any interpretation, they simply become, they accumulate. Now, Alcestis is trying to 
say to her son the following. Great happiness was given to me once, Epimenes. Yes, but shall I forget that now? In other words, now that I'm in a terrible place. Shall I forget the one who gave it to me? All that has happened since came from the same hands that gave me happiness. And God is bringing things to pass in his own way. Well, this is Alcestis's plea for what we would today call monism. Uh, there are not two different hands at work. There's not a hand at work in the blessings and bounty of your good years, your seven fat years, and uh, uh, a different hand at work in your seven lean years and your defeats and your, your uh, blockages and uh, humiliating uh, uh, firings and your sitting around on unemployment and uh, your uh, divorces and uh, your children really making a mess of things that you had given your all to help them not do. She says that all that has happened since, this is the negativity, came from the same hands that gave me the happiness. The, um, the uh, message of Alcestis, that there is one and not two hands, a message, by the way, which very few Christian people, very few people of any kind, of any sort, of any commitment, of any non-commitment, are going to swallow because they're, they want to split the good from the bad. And inevitably, we want to get away from the bad things and always favor the good and try to, what is the word, uh, uh, get this behind me. Move, move, move forward with my life, uh, attain closure, these impossible to do uh, hopes that we're expected to do after death, after Columbine. Are you kidding? Um, she has been the recipient of a wisdom which says that the same hand that dealt the blow has dealt the blessing. And um, this is... Uh, this is what she says later when she's trying to uh, convince this awful tyrant, Aegis, who is uh, just in a state over his potentially dying daughter because of the plague, that's Laodamia, and his internal uncertainty about his throne. Because if he gained it dishonestly, he might lose it dishonestly. You know, if you left your marriage to go to another woman, she might leave that marriage to go with another man. The Achilles heel of illegality uh, and um, usurping and unfaithfulness and betrayal, once you start, you are the victim yourself of the very thing that you did. This is a, this is a constantly repeated fact in human existence. And so Alcestis says to Aegis, after Alcestis has tried to give a kind of monist wisdom of life to her son, uh, Epimenes, now she gives it to her antagonist. She says, the gods, King Aegis, are not like you and me, but at times we are like them. They do not love us for a day or a year and then hate what they have loved. Nor do you love your child, Lamedamia, today and tomorrow drive her out upon the road. We ask of the gods, says Alcestis, health and riches and our happiness, but they are trying to give us something else and better, understanding. 
And then um, we uh, hear uh, the uh, uh, a discussion immediately thereafter in which the townspeople are upset with God, uh, upset with God for bringing the disease to bringing the plague upon their people. They cannot put the same God who had once blessed them in the same room with the God who has apparently, whoever it is, is the cause of the pestilence. And look, if you want to be an atheist, don't even say cause. We have to put can we put the pestilence in the same room as the smorgasbord of another period of time? And Alcestis makes this claim. This pestilence has been sent to call our attention to, uh, to make a stop, to open our eyes. And the king says, to call our attention to what, Alcestis? And Alcestis says, I don't know. Now, this is uh, something, isn't it? This is the the linking of understanding and wisdom. I would use the word resignation and acceptance. The wisdom that is resignation, that looks upon all that is given as givenness rather than something to be actively averted and looked away from. The whole of the life, this is an ancient wisdom, there's nothing new about this, but it's in the context of a, of a love and a beautiful sacrificing, sacrificial, generous human being uh, and woman that Alcestis is, now having lost everything, attempting to understand what is going on and her uh, coming to terms is that it is ultimately all from the same hand. And if we don't understand it, admit it. I don't understand how where I am now can have any continuity or coherence or even meaning alongside where I was. But I'm going to accept that there is at least a one, a unity to my life. Let's just call it my life, even if we don't call it a unity to, of God. Let's call it there's a unity to my life. So there is some unity. There is some unity. Now uh, we come to the end. And uh, there's a one relatively, um, I think, unsatisfactory um, section when Alcestis attempts to comfort Aegis after the death of his daughter Laodamia and uh, tries to talk about the relationship between love on the one hand and meaning. And is love the meaning or is love a pointer to the fact that there is meaning. And at this point, I'm feeling that maybe the playwright is under the influence of certain aspects of Søren Kierkegaard, or maybe a little bit of Paul Tillich thrown in there. But I'm definitely seeing a meaning, uh, but not um, a, a kind of uh, open... He's not fully clear on what he's saying. I'm not saying he has to be fully clear on, what he, what he, uh, what he, uh, on what's ultimately true, because there are vast swaths of uncertainty and question mark in any uh, relating to life. Uh, but I am uh, aware that the playwright appears a little bit, um, he, he's, he's, he's moving towards something, but he hasn't quite attained it. It's not fully baked, the play, towards the end. But at the very end, it is fully baked.
and I will conclude with a thought on the very ending of uh, the third act of Alcestis. Now, I've talked about the 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 the, um, the mistake you make if you underappreciate the potential theological in a writer like Thornton Wilder, for whom it was a theme, albeit not the only theme, but a theme, and by his own admission, in many situations. Although we, you don't want to push it, but on the other hand, you don't want to obviate it and eracinate it, because that would also not be doing justice. There are all kinds of things that you have said before in life that if if you put it on tape and you looked, at, you have to look at the whole of what is said, and there is a definite resonance of death and resurrection that is profoundly hopeful here, as there is in the much earlier. One actor, Pullman Carr Hiawatha, where the angel Gabriel is clearly, evidently, but not explicitly relating to Harriet something like the uh, confidence that God is ultimately forgiving rather than judging and that leading through the veil of this world into some kind of ultimately unified vision which cannot be given in this life but is ultimately known by whoever is giving it and to whom Harriet is going at the end or actually in the late middle of Pulmonkar Hiawatha. Now, <clears throat> at the end of this great uh, play, and I believe that Alcestiad taken as a whole is a play that is verging on greatness, if not the whole nine yards, but is verging on greatness. Uh, maybe it took, could have taken just a few months more work to bring it to the highest level of inspiration, but the ending is inspired, in my opinion, and it speaks to me, and I hope it will speak to you. Apollo arrives, and uh, he's there. He enters the stage, and he is clearly the god. And left alone, Alcestis sees him, and she seems to shrink, it says, to a great age. She starts to move toward a gate on the road. Now Apollo and Alcestis, similar to the angel Gabriel and Harriet, are speaking. And I want to go through the, uh, the dialogue, which is very short. Apollo, a few more steps, Alcestis, through the gate and across the road and into my grove. That sounds like uh, Stonewall Jackson, doesn't it? You know, I, let, let us pass over the river to the trees. Um, the images are very deep. Remember, there was a Twilight Zone episode. I don't know if you remember it. When all the dead of the Civil War were passing by uh, the portico of an old ruined um, southern uh, plantation house. And they're all passing by on their way to the afterworld. And finally, of course, uh, the last casualty passes by, and it's uh, President Lincoln. And he leads very lovingly and very... Uh, very beautifully and with tremendous ironic reconciliation. Uh, and you, you have to comment on it, the viewer in the great script. He leads the, the dead uh, widow of a, of a, her, of a Confederate uh, officer who's, who's, uh, whose wife she is. And she is now joining him uh, in the great procession. And they go into, as it were, across the road into my grove. And Alcestis says, so far and so high. Remember what Harriet had said? I, it, I can't go. I can't go unaccompanied. I can't go alone. It's too hard for me. Al Apollo says to Alcestis, now another step. It is not a hill. Notice it is not a hill. You do not have to raise your foot. Alcestis says, it is too far. Let me find my grave here. 
Apollo says, you will not have that grave, Alcestis. Apollo says, the grave means an end. You will not have that ending. You are the first of a great number that will not have that ending. Still another step, Alcestis. Alcestis is in the ranks of those who have given their lives for others. That's why the God says you are the first of a great number that will not have that ending. Still another step. And then after a mention of grandchildren, Alcestis says, yes, what was his name? Apollo says, Admetus. Now, for anyone who's married, for anyone who's uh, in a long-term relationship of intimate affection and caring, that is, uh, in some ways, the high point of the play, emotionally. The whole play is about Alcestis's love for Admetus and Admetus's love for Alcestis, which is an absolutely beautiful, powerful thing. It's like Tamino and Pamina in uh, The Magic Flute. It is not just like Romeo and Juliet. Just like Romeo and Juliet. Ooh, ooh. Um, it is a different love. It is a lifelong love based upon lifelong sacrifice and utter complete wheresoever thou goest, so there goeth I. But at the very end of life, life being even bigger than love, which is to say the biggest possible eternal subspecie eternitatis of the God's eye view, which we started out earlier talking about in the first of these four talks, even Admetus and the love that he and Alcestis shared together is um, really whited out in favor of the biggest possible canvas. Now, I am um, not going to give you some kind of theological word for that, but the uh, love for Admetus is so paled ultimately by the over overworld that she is now entering that she doesn't at this point remember his name and she doesn't even remember the uh, calling that she had her youth he says to her Admetus Alcestis says yes and the shining one I wanted to serve Apollo says Apollo and then Alcestis says, near the gate, all the thousands of days in the world of cares, and whom do I thank for all the happiness? We close with a, a somewhat um, enigmatic final word between Apollo and Alcestis, but we really close with the last word of the play before the curtain comes down. Apollo's last word to his friend, Alcestis, is to call her by name. Those who have loved one another do not ask one another the question. It's a question of who exactly has given me this happiness? Who exactly is God? And uh, Apollo will not answer the question but he calls her by name. Now that's, uh, you're going to remember, I suspect um, you're going to remember uh, some of you may think of uh, Mary Magdalene uh, 
uh, as uh, in John, when uh, she uh, meets the Lord but does not recognize him and uh, does not know him. Whom do I ask? Whom do I thank, as it were? Who is it? And she doesn't even know. So she uh, talks to that very one and doesn't know that it is he. And the, 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 the veil is lifted when he says to her, Mary. And at that point she says, Rabboni. The veil is lifted when the name is there. So whatever future Alcestis uh, has entered, it does include her name while at the same hand it has kind of snowed over uh, the uh, individual particularities, even the very finest aspects of her life. Here we have that unity of love and wisdom, or love and understanding, which in the wilder play is subsumed by understanding, whereas for many of us it would be that love which is greater than uh, hope and faith because it is the love that characterizes the afterworld as well as the understanding. Now, this is a great play, um, a slightly um, oblique, that is to say almost too oblique in a couple of cases, although that may be artistic mastery, but I don't want to carp. I want to give you the open-endedness of a view of life which was uh, tutored in Christianity, um, broadened, as it were, or at least, no, that's not the right word, universalized through experience and through encounter and through life. And here is universalized both to include, to suffuse, uh, and to ultimately unify the highest impulses of love, sacrifice, and wisdom in, for example, the ancient Greek myth with the uh, Bob Dylan's uh, word, uh, the old religion. And uh, on that note, that uh, beautiful coming together of that which is ultimately wise and universal to every single human situation and that which is characterized in this life by a sacrificing and uh, non-failing uh, and finally courageous uh, loving, which is ultimately far more important than all ebbs and flows of human experience. On that note, I end the, uh, the searchings after love and wisdom, which I hope will characterize these talks uh, on uh, PZ's podcast. Uh, God bless you. And <laughs>